I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Renee Landers, Professor of Law at Suffolk University Law School, and John McDonough, Professor of the Practice of Public Health and Director of the Center for Public Health Leadership at the Harvard School of Public Health. Professors Landers and McDonough have written prospective articles on the implications of the Supreme Court decision on the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. To start, Professor McDonough, when the Affordable Care Act was being drafted, were the lawmakers concerned that there might be a constitutional challenge to it? No. I think there was a recognition that there very well might be a constitutional challenge, and there was a firm belief backed up by many constitutional lawyers with whom we consulted that we had ample justification for what we were doing, first under the Commerce Clause, then under the general welfare part of the Constitution, and third under the necessary and proper. And so if you look at the actual text of the Affordable Care Act, and you can just Google Affordable Care Act text, and there it will be for you, and you go to Title I, which deals with all of the controversial insurance issues, and Subtitle E, which is the section on the individual responsibility requirement, popularly known as the individual mandate, you will find the first part of that is a whole series of congressional findings which are put there at the advice of constitutional scholars to make abundantly clear why we believed this was done in firm concert with the requirements and provisions of the federal constitution. So, Professor Landers, it didn't quite work out that way. Can you summarize the constitutional questions that formed the basis of the case? Sure. It was surprising, actually, that the challenges to the Affordable Care Act on the constitutional basis were able to gain such traction, I think, in the legal system. Uh, There were uh, essentially uh, four issues that the courts have looked at when um, considering the constitutionality of the, of the uh, Affordable Care Act. The first issue was whether you know courts had any jurisdiction right now to decide the case uh, because if the individual mandate provision of the Affordable Care Act was framed as a tax, there's a statute called the Anti-Injunction Act, which is a very old statute, which prohibits federal courts from enjoining the enforcement of a tax, and then uh, courts then may rule on the constitutionality of the tax after uh, it's uh, been assessed against someone and someone has paid the tax. The two substantive issues were whether the Congress had the power under the Commerce Clause to impose the mandate to require someone to purchase a product on the private market. And then the second issue was whether the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution prohibited the structure of the Medicaid expansion provision, whether tying all of the um, funds that would go to the states uh, under the Medicaid expansion and the current funds that states were already receiving under the existing Medicaid program to the states adopting the expansion was constitutional under the 10th Amendment or whether they were, were that was coercive on the part of the federal government. As you say, one of the crucial questions was the validity of the individual mandate. Other countries, such as the Netherlands, have mandatory health insurance, and it's not controversial there. Professor McDonough, why has the individual mandate been so politically controversial in this country and so unpopular? I think there are some broad and some narrower answers to that, and I think they're all true. The first is that the United States has a political culture which veers much more strongly than other nations toward the libertarian point of view, 
There's a big libertarian strain in U.S. culture that goes back to before we were a nation. Leave us alone. Government stay out of our lives. And so part of the resistance to it comes from that. Uh, even in Massachusetts, which I think exhibits that strain far less strongly than most of the rest of the country, the individual mandate has by far been the least popular part of the fairly popular Massachusetts health reform law. So it's an enduring piece. I think, though, most importantly, when the health reform process started in 2008 and 2009, there was broad bipartisan support for an individual mandate as the path to achieving universal coverage that was shared broadly by Republicans and Democrats. In fact, Democrats had to be kind of dragged into agreeing with the concept of the mandate, and Republicans were robustly part of it. The Republican elite, it was a kind of healthcare orthodoxy that an individual mandate was the appropriate way to move forward. And what we saw in the summer of 2009 was a broad, widespread abandonment of that idea by the Republican elites pushed by the Tea Party and the grassroots of the Republican Party. And so all of a sudden, the individual mandate, which had been a bipartisan idea, all of a sudden became a victim of the very harsh political polarization. And so since then, it has been an article of faith for Republicans to condemn the mandate as a terrible thing to do, as a terrible idea. There's been a lot of money put into paying for advertising that's far outstripped support for the law, that's focused on the mandate, saying why it's such a bad thing. And so I would say above all, the individual mandate has been a real uh, victim of the polarization that we've seen across American society over the past several years. I would add one other idea to what John just described, and that is in other countries, there seems to be a much more communitarian approach to social welfare programs, public social welfare programs. And that spirit, for whatever reason, or perhaps because of this libertarian streak, has not infected the United States uh, to the same degree. And um, I think this notion that we are all in this together, that the country is only as strong as the weakest person, and that the country therefore needs to support uh, people who need support from time to time in their lives, is not a notion that has been broadly embraced in the United States. But I would say that if you think about Canada, and you mentioned the Netherlands or some of the Scandinavian countries, they would say that there's this sort of shared community responsibility for everyone in the community that we don't we don't have that same sense here in the United States. And I would agree with that. And I'd add one other thing, which is that there is much more hostility to something when it's new and it's perceived as being added on. So there was hostility to Social Security and to Medicare when those were programs were created in the 30s and the 60s. And the belief is that if it actually gets established and, and implemented that the intensity of opposition will begin to decline. We are not sure if we'll get to that point, but that is the belief and the hope. So in the end, of course, the mandate was upheld, but it was not upheld on the basis of the Commerce Clause, which, as John said, was what the drafters of the law expected, but on the basis of Congress's power to tax and spend. Renee, can you describe this distinction and tell us what it might mean for the future of the Commerce Clause? So under the Supreme Court's precedence, I think the reason that the drafters of the Affordable Care Act thought that the individual mandate would be constitutional, under the Supreme Court's precedence, um, 
the court has been very generous in upholding regulatory actions of Congress that have been justified on the basis of the Commerce Clause. Uh, Only in two recent cases, uh, a case involving the Gun-Free School Zones Act and a case involving um, the uh, Civil Remedy for the Violence Against Women Act, has the court said that the connection between interstate commerce and the regulation that Congress had imposed was too weak to justify upholding the statute. And it has been common to distinguish those two cases from the 70 years of jurisprudence before that, where the court was upholding pretty routinely congressional regulations of commerce, as long as Congress had some colorable uh, reason or rationale for connecting whatever it was regulating to commerce, to economic activity. Uh, And the way that scholars have distinguished those two cases is on the grounds that really what Congress was trying to get at in those two cases was some backdoor way to engage in uh, regulating crimes or uh, policing crimes, which has been thought to be the province of the states. Uh, So um, that's why it was a surprise that the court did not uphold the law under the Commerce Clause rationale. The Taxing and Spending Clause uh, gives Congress the power to tax and spend, as John said earlier, for the general welfare. And that also is a very broad power. And as uh, Chief Justice Roberts said in his opinion in the case about the Affordable Care Act, it's uh, in some ways uh, allows the Congress to reach more activity than it can reach directly through a direct regulation using the commerce power because the authority to tax and to collect revenue is you know, one of the quintessential activities of a government. And that clause has been interpreted very broadly. And so I think um, I was surprised that the court decided to use that basis for upholding the law. But uh, sort of in retrospect, you could see if the uh, current Uh, more conservative majority of the court is trying to find ways to limit the reach of Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. Finding another grounds for upholding the statute seemed probably like a good idea to them. The mandate has been upheld. The financial penalty for not complying, for not carrying health insurance is fairly small, however. John, do you think there's a risk that people will simply choose not to buy health insurance and pay this penalty instead? I should start out by noting that you call it a penalty, and I guess according to the court now it's a tax, (laughs) and there's a big debate across the country about is it a penalty or is it a tax? And to me, the answer is rather simple. It is a tax penalty. We have this stream in culture where everything has to be either one thing or the other. Tax and penalty are very elastic terms, so I like to refer to it as a tax penalty and leave people scratching their heads. But so it is relatively small. It is certainly smaller than the cost of buying health insurance. So is the individual mandate penalty in Massachusetts significantly smaller. And when that law was passed, we had many people saying, listen, why would anybody buy health insurance when they can just pay the penalty? And in truth, we have about 30 to 40,000 people a year in Massachusetts who pay the penalty and don't buy health insurance. They're not breaking the law. They're complying with the law, and it is their choice. They don't get any value for the money they pay for the penalty. They don't get any health protection, but they're not breaking the law in any way. And so there's a similar structure in the ACA. So there will be many people who will not buy the law. At its lower level, the penalty in the ACA is lower than Massachusetts. At its higher level, it's actually higher. And we don't really know, but it's one of those items in the law that will 
certainly get a huge amount of evaluation if it gets implemented and we see, and then we can judge the impact. And then if Congress begins to deal with this law the way they deal with every other large complex statute, they will then discuss and at various points in the future go in and adjust in various ways. It's a law. It's not part of the Constitution. And so it can be fixed. It could be strengthened. It could be weakened. The nature of it could be changed. I think, though, that the casual predictions that vast numbers of people will just pay the penalty is not borne out by the experience in Massachusetts. Of course, Massachusetts doesn't represent the rest of the country, but it does provide us the only concrete experience to try to evaluate how this will play out. And so I would just suggest that people should wait and see what happens as this moves forward into implementation to make any real conclusions. Well, part of it also depends on what you think the reasons are that people don't buy health insurance. So if you think the reason is that the person is making this rational economic choice that, uh, to take the path uh, the, of the least expensive path in the short term and, you know, sort of take their chances that they won't have a serious or significant health care issue, which would cost them a lot of money, then, uh, you know, sort of deciding to take the cheaper option of paying the penalty rather than buying health insurance may sense. But if the reason people don't have health insurance is because their employer doesn't offer it now and they are unable to afford to purchase it at a reasonable rate on the private market under the current system, then with the advent of the state health insurance exchanges, the goal of which is to make the cost of health insurance more affordable to people who don't have employer-based health insurance, give them other market choices, then perhaps more people will make that choice because they're actually worried about the risks they're taking by not having health insurance. So the courts seem to assume that more people were in the former category than the latter category. But as, as John says, time will tell. But I, I'm not sure that the court is, is right about that. The other thing I would say is that, like the tax system generally, you know, the, the, the chances that any individual taxpayer in a particular year at most ordinary levels of income is going to be audited by the IRS are very small. Nevertheless, the vast majority of people file their tax returns and pay their income taxes. So there, there is this um, culture about compliance with the law that I think um, also will kind of kick in and cause people to purchase insurance. And, and I would suggest, I totally agree with that. I think that there's an element of the Massachusetts experience, again, that is very informative here. The Massachusetts individual mandate penalties do not apply to low-income people and, by the way, don't apply to children, only to adults. And yet we've seen in Massachusetts an extraordinary increase in coverage among low-income adults and children who are not subject to the mandate. Not so much because of the mandate, but because of the enormous and successful effort made in Massachusetts to do public education, to make people aware of what the law was, to make them know about the opportunities, and grassroots groups going door to door, church groups going into their pews and identifying uninsured people and helping them and convincing them to get coverage. So 
it's less the mandate in many ways than it is the public education effort behind it to get people to come forward and take advantage of these new opportunities. And many free tax preparation services um, for low-income and, and moderate-income people, um, also part of the idea is to help people figure out how to enroll in insurance if they want to when they see that they're going to be hit with this penalty on their tax return, which, you know, might affect the refund, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, other consequences that they may not like. So there is this big um, effort to educate people about the opportunity. There's also a link here to the Medicaid program, too, because when you're, John is talking about children and uh, low-income taxpayers, or not taxpayers, you know, the expansion of the S-CHIP program and the efforts in many states to really try to get full enrollment of children who are eligible in that program to have health insurance coverage has really helped address this issue with children. And so there is some connection here at the lower income levels with the Medicaid expansion piece of the Affordable Care Act. Renee, I'm going to ask you a speculative question. In his seven-year tenure, Chief Justice Roberts has never before joined the four liberal justices in a 5-4 decision, but he's done it now. Why do you think this happened, and what do you think the dynamics are inside the court? Well, I would say two things. First, uh, Chief Justice Roberts said himself in the opinion in the Affordable Care Act case that there's a first time for everything. And um, and then a, a couple of weeks ago, Justice Ginsburg was speaking at a public event where she said, those who are talking don't know, and those who know are not talking. So um, it's hard to know what he was thinking, but... I, I always thought that he would vote to uphold the law, after, especially after listening to the oral arguments, because I could tell by his questions to both sides that he was really think, thinking about the consequences, uh, not only you know for the statute and its sort of narrow ramifications, uh, but also the consequences, the broader consequences for the country and the relationship between the court and the other branches of the government. And I think that uh, and he, the very his opinion is interesting in the case because he has a very you know relatively lengthy introductory section in which he talks about the role of the court in reviewing congressional statutes for their constitutionality, that the Constitution gives a lot of power to the Congress, and really the courts should defer to the judgments of the political actors about matters of policy and only say that a law is unconstitutional when it really is. And you know, just because the courts might think the law is a bad idea or not the best choice that Congress and the president could have made, that's not a reason for saying that the law is invalid. So I think that he was taking uh, very seriously the appropriate restraint that courts perhaps should uh, feel when they're looking at reviewing statutes enacted by Congress. It is scary to contemplate that there were four justices fully prepared to overturn the whole law. And if some of the tantalizing news accounts have any credibility that for some significant period of time, there were actually five justices prepared, including Roberts. And the suggestion is made that perhaps he changed his mind about a month ago when we started to have some columnists and folks write columns suggesting that they were worried that Roberts might be going weak on the conservative side. And so there's a lot more yet to come to learn about this. But one of the 
interesting dynamic thing is we've had a number of accounts and stories come out that talk about what was going on behind the scenes with the conservative justices. And I haven't seen a peep about what was going on among the four liberal justices and their involvement and role. And they had to, of course, have been very deeply engaged. And it's interesting the dynamics that are playing out right now in terms of how the media is covering and the speculation about who's talking and who isn't. So uh, another surprising feature of the case is that Justices Breyer and Kagan voted with the majority that um, tying the Medicaid expansion to existing Medicaid funds was a coercion and violation of the Tenth Amendment. I think that was a pretty surprising vote from the two of them. On the other hand, I point out that it actually did not really matter uh, in the uh, in the end because they already had five votes for that point of view. But it does, um, I, I think there are two aspects of this case that are concerning about the future. Um, one can perhaps put uh, this statute into a unique category, um, as, as uh, Chief Justice, one of the things that Chief Roberts said in his opinion was, you know, there's a first time for everything, and just because you know Congress has done something unique doesn't mean that it's unconstitutional. Nevertheless, they found part of this law to be unconstitutional. I think that the theory about the limits on Congress's Commerce Clause power, and the theory about the limits on Congress's power to tie the federal funds to states are very concerning, in my view, for the future. I think that uh, if applied broadly to other legislation, they could really restrain Congress's ability to act in very important ways. They could also call into question, um, with clever litigators, the validity of long-standing federal policies and programs. Uh, so on the Medicaid expansion piece, it gives the states a lot of leverage in pushing back against the federal Well, yeah, we'll take your money, but we're not going to do it your way, which doesn't seem to me to make a lot of sense. As you say, the, the Medicaid expansion was upheld, but the penalty the states would have been subject to was ruled coercive and unconstitutional. Renee, you described some of the implications for the future of social welfare programs in general. John, what do you think the implications of this part of the decision are for state compliance with Medicaid and for the future of Medicaid specifically? So this was by far the most immediately consequential element in the decision in terms of something that changes right now that's different, which is that the states now have an option not to expand their Medicaid programs in 2014 to the expansion population, namely everyone below what's known as 138% of the federal poverty level, about $15,000 in income for a single adult. And already a number of Republican governors, no Democratic governors, have announced that they will either reject the expansion or are leaning against it, as well as some Republican legislative leaders around the country. And so I think we can understand this as significant through the election, the November elections, and understand that it would be, to some extent, disloyal to the Republican Party line at this point to say, no, I will go ahead with this expansion anyway. So more telling will be how these governors and legislative leaders respond post-November 6th, and that will be more telling. The thing to understand, though, is that there are strong financial incentives for states to go along with these expansions. For the first three years, the federal government pays 100% of the cost 
and it only trails down to 90% of the cost borne by the feds by 2019 and 2020. And traditional Medicaid only pays states between 50 and 83 cents on the dollar. So it's a reason for states to look at this because there is so much financial advantage to them. On the same time, it will go very much against the tide of public opinion in the Republican base, and so it may take some time. But that's actually consistent with the history of Medicaid, and Medicaid was established in 1965. It took some time for many states to decide to join into the program, and the big outlier was Arizona, which did not formally join the Medicaid program until 1982 about 17 years after it was created. So I think we can expect a slower movement into it. And that's unfortunate because that means that perhaps as many as 20 million low-income adults will not get coverage on January 1st, 2014 that would have been available to them. And the states that are the most resistant, like for example, Texas, Louisiana, Florida, are in fact the states that have by far the largest uh, proportion and share of unenrolled low-income adults. Also, I mean, I think that uh, on the other hand, I, I agree with John completely what he said. I think on the other hand, the Medicaid budgets are an enormous expenditure for the states. And I think the states are concerned that after 2020, the federal government will change the terms of the expansion program. and pay the states less for participating uh, enrollees. And so I can understand why that's a concern, but that's not a decision they have to make now. I mean, they can take that money now and then make a different decision later or negotiate with the Congress to keep the same generous structure of the program uh, in 2020. So there's this tendency also to think that we have to have the perfect solution and all the answers for all time. Uh, at this moment. And I think that uh, there could be some appreciation for working with experience and, you know, solving new problems when they arise. But I do think that the states um, have a legitimate concern about the impact of Medicaid expenditures on state budgets in times when the economy is so sluggish right now. There, There are two groups within Medicaid to keep your eye on. The first group is, of course, is the newly entitled folks beginning in 2014 who have no access to Medicaid right now and for whom the federal government will cover between 90 and 100 cents on the dollar in terms of paying for them when they join the program. But there's another group, and that is a very large group of people who are currently eligible for Medicaid today and who are not enrolled in the program. And the fear among some governors is that with the individual mandate and the Medicaid expansion, a lot of those folks are also going to come and sign up. And those folks, the governors will only get somewhere between 50 and 83 cents on the dollar. And many of those governors have used making it as difficult as possible for low-income folks to enroll in or stay in Medicaid as part of their strategy to manage their budgets. And so if all of those folks come in, then that creates more of a financial burden for the states than the newly entitled populations coming in. So this is a big question that we talk about in the law. If you have a government benefit program such as Medicaid with you know certain 
limitations on eligibility criteria. Is it in the government's interest to encourage everyone who is eligible to enroll and participate in the program? Or is it in the government's interest to announce that there's a very generous program but make it very hard for people actually to be part of it and to participate in it. And um, you know, the Supreme Court has been clear in some old cases, we wonder if they would decide this part of the case is the same way today, that it is in the government's interest that everyone who's eligible be given the right to participate. So this um, Medicaid expansion is, 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 as John said, is doing two things, is you know, raising this notion that universal health insurance coverage is very important for the economy, for the society, and uh, really trying to use the existing and the new programs to get as close as possible to universal insurance coverage. And that is going to mean that more people use public programs. I, I just add one more thing. It is deeply ironic that if the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, is fully implemented, that after 2014, the only group in American society that will not have an absolute guarantee of access to affordable health insurance will be low-income adults in certain states that have chosen not to join this particular expansion. I want to ask each of you a, a big picture final question. Renee, can you summarize what you think are the most important implications of this case for constitutional law? I think there are two important implications. One is whether the court has announced in the case a new theory of the limits on congressional power under the Commerce Clause and whether the four conservative justices who signed a joint opinion and Chief Justice Roberts will apply that theory in future cases. And second, whether the um, court is going to start policing congressional conditions on its the grant of money to the states more vigorously and you know try to draw fine lines about what kind of incentives are appropriate and when the incentive becomes coercion uh, as justice ginsburg said in her dissent to the overruling of the, the medicaid incentive to the states she said you know courts are perhaps not good at making these policy judgments and line drawing and she urged the court not to do it and not to uh, announce a theory to engage in it but it will be interesting to see what the court decides to do in future cases so I think we don't really know what the full implications of this decision are yet and John what do you think the important implications of the case are for the US healthcare system well by far the most important one is that health reform in the United States lives on to move forward and to fight for another day. Um, it's hugely important in terms of erasing the moral stain on our country from having so many people who are uninsured. We are the only advanced nation on the planet that permits our citizens to suffer financial ruin because they get sick. There's no other country that comes close to doing anything like that that calls itself an advanced nation. So that moves forward. And there are many parts of this law that also move forward that are not related to coverage. So the important work of redesigning and reforming our healthcare delivery system through accountable care organizations, through the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, through medical homes, all of those innovations, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation within CMS, the Center for Dual Eligibles, all of those reforms up and down, right and left across the system 
will continue to move forward, including the advances in public health and prevention, the healthcare workforce, fraud and abuse, the Indian Health Services Reauthorization Act, so many of those things that had Justice Roberts had a different idea might now be completely in the wastebasket. These kinds of reforms, which are not fiercely controversial at all, will in fact move forward. So the, the work of reforming and modernizing and improving our healthcare system moves forward with a big proviso, which is that November 6, 2012, the day of our federal elections for Congress and the president, increasingly look like a national referendum on the Affordable Care Act because the consequences of that election on that day will be felt more immediately and severely around health reform than anything else. And the simple matter is if President Obama is reelected, if the Senate stays Democrat, and if the House returns Democrat, the Affordable Care Act will be implemented largely as designed. If Mitt Romney wins, and if Republicans take the Senate and hold the House, the Republicans will use the budget reconciliation process early in 2013 to repeal the major fundamental building blocks of the law, including all of the expansions in Title I and Title II of the law. And if we have divided government, then it will continue to be a contentious game of jump ball in terms of where it falls down. But so I can't think of another federal election where a federal law was so much at stake based on the outcome of the election. So the work of health reform lives on for another day and another six months of days. And we have no idea, though, beyond November 12th. That is another fateful obstacle, another fateful date on November 6, 2012. John also didn't mention two other really important features of the law. Well, at least one of them is very popular. One is closing the Medicare donut hole for uh, Medicare Part D on pharmaceutical drugs. And uh, the other is uh, raising the payment rates paid to physicians who serve Medicaid beneficiaries to the payment levels of Medicare beneficiaries, because that will actually help ensure that this new expanded population of Medicaid uh, participants are more likely to find doctors who will be able to take care of them. Thank you, Professor Landers, Professor McDonough.